Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Reception history is a big, fat joke. What? Were you expecting subtlety from a West Sider whose dad grew up in the Egypt of Gamal Abdel Nasser? Okay, let me start over. Reception history is the last breath of a dying school of the humanities desperately trying to prove its value from within a colonial framework of self-importance that was already headed to the dustbin of history the moment Aristotle penned his first memo to Alexander, whom the small decided to call great because, well, every fool imagines they are better than their parents. Look how that turned out. I am not a big deal. You are not a big deal. Moreover, our modern civilization is not a big deal. It is not a factor, cannot be factored in, and is not within the purview of Scripture. I hate to scandalize all the self-loving postmodernists out there pontificating about the intersection between their ego and the text, but the Bible was written before you, existed, and still exists without you and your personal narrative. And when humanity is long gone, could easily be read by space aliens, and who knows, some other form of intelligence, and probably will be. You and I are not needed, and any meaning we supposedly create or try to add to it is not from Scripture and therefore has nothing to do with the God of Scripture. So all this talk about your history, which is about you and your reception of it, is worse than vain talk. It is blasphemy. You are taking something irrelevant, something that is not a subject matter, and using it to supplant the God of Scripture as the premise of Scripture. To all who hear these words, be it known to you, we are not interested in worshiping you, your gods, your narratives, or your empty human histories. According to Paul, Psalm 78, and the biblical story itself, your ancestors are evil. So why are you talking about them or how they received the Bible? We know why because ultimately you want to talk about yourself. 
But your ancestors clearly had no clue, which is why, as Paul thundered, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to the human race. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from reception history. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 40 to 41. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 502 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Well, Rich, the book is out, Dark Sayings, Diary of an American Priest. It's a huge weight off my shoulders, to be honest. Kind of sums up the last 20 or so years of ministry at St. Elizabeth. On the West Side, the last five years, which for me is a bit stranger than fiction. That's the neighborhood I grew up in. But it's the story, if you will, of the burden, the Pauline burden, of submitting to the teaching of Scripture, which was not written for us. We are not in the purview of the scriptural words. And this is something I want to make very clear for our listeners. The modern world is not in the purview of Scripture. Scripture is addressed to the characters in its story at the time of its writing. So Dark Sayings is about my effort as a priest, my effort as a pastor to go back in time as a kind of archaeologist of the text under the pressure of my teacher to go back in time and enter into the practical realm. I won't say reality because reality is a stupid philosophical word. To go back in time into the practical realm, the practical alien realm of the biblical text and record what I hear and then, as a teacher in this present day, in this practical reality, just explain to people what I heard. You can't make it relevant for people today. Once you do that, you're making a new god, which is idolatry. But you have to somehow explain to people what you heard when you were visiting that alien realm that place that's completely alien to the world in which we live in 2023, 
which is not in the purview of the scriptural text, which means trying to bring the community that you're trying to teach, the community in which you live, back in time to that ancient realm. In the case of the book, it's also trying to explain to my readers how I was trying to live under the pressure of that ancient realm, trying to live under the pressure of the Pauline teaching and what might be of value for people living in modern-day America, which, if we learn anything from that ancient practical realm, is completely lost. I mean, <laughs> we've been saying that on the podcast for some time now. I think there's quite a bit we can learn from our archaeological and historical expeditions into the alien realm, the practical realm of the ancient alien universe of the biblical text. When we were talking earlier, Father, about this expedition, I love that word expedition, and that what the Bible is Literature podcast does, what our books do, we go into this unknown land where they speak this foreign language. We try to understand the best we can what's going on there. We come out, and then we write books for people who don't live there. I'm trying to plan a trip to Europe right now. I love Rick Steves. Rick Steves is a great travel writer, very practical, very insightful. He's got some wisdom about how to connect with other human beings who aren't like you. He wrote Travel's a Political Act. I love this person's writings. So when I want to go to Amsterdam, I got his book so I could learn about what I need to know about Amsterdam. Now, I've been to Amsterdam before. I've been there several times. But I have my own point of view and what I've seen, and I like what Rick Steves has as well. It's helpful. So I can read his books and learn something about this place that I'm going to without actually having to go there. Now, Amsterdam exists on its own. Feel free to go visit. Just buy a ticket and go. You don't need to read Rick Steves. You don't need to listen to anybody. You can just go. But if it helps to talk to somebody who's been there before to read about what they saw there, what they noticed there, feel free. And this is the expedition that you and I are trying to describe as we do the Bible as Literature podcast and as we write. And as people who have our own independent interests, people who listen to the podcast probably don't know you and I have independent interests. We sound like guys who are just talking together night and day. Uh, you know, you did this research into the west side of St. Paul, which is the place not only that you came from, but also the place where you ended up, where St. Elizabeth ended up. And in my book, Loving Language, Learning to Hear Your Neighbor, I wrote about my family coming from Columbus, Nebraska. Significantly, the similarity is you saw the state of Minnesota wiping out this community on the west side. And what I saw is the state of Nebraska wiping out this German-speaking community in central Nebraska. We can't help but see what the powers that be do. Scripture is always spoken from one level above those powers that be. We've both spent time in this realm where whether it's a ghost, whether it's an alien in a flying saucer, there's a power above them. And in the reading today, we see that the people are oppressed by demons, and we have this one who is one above them, who comes in and creates peace among the oppressor and the oppressed. 
this is what is beautiful about today's reading is it brings together this idea of demons and the unseen realm and all that kind of stuff like the late Mike Heiser used to write about. But this unseen realm includes a power greater than all those other ones. Whatever other gods there are, and whether they're aliens, whether they're demons, whether they're ghosts, it actually doesn't matter functionally. Because there's one at the head of the heavenly council, and that's the Lord. What I realized in writing dark sayings is that the conversation cannot be about Palestine. The conversation ideologically cannot be about women's rights. The conversation ideologically cannot be about race. It can't even be about white privilege or gender or any of the pet issues that people elevate in order to elevate themselves. Because we, human beings, are not it. And Father Paul made this point recently, that whether you're talking about an artificial intelligence or an alien intelligence or the fish in the sea or the vegetation in Genesis, what Scripture's interest in its ancient practicality, which is not the world that we inhabit today. We are not in the purview of the scriptural text. We are not germane. Its point to its addressees in its purview is that they are not relevant, let alone us. They are not it. Ha-Adam is not relevant. The human race is not relevant. It has a place, but not at the head of the table, just somewhere, maybe at the table. This is what we have to let sink in. And we're hearing this story of which we are not a part. Once you realize this and you submit, that is the only relevant word in the English language. One has to submit. You have to first travel to that ancient practical realm and then submit because you can't speak its language. And when you visit there, they can't see you. You are a shadow in that realm. You can only hear what is spoken and you can't really understand because it's a one-way conversation and a language that we can barely decode. You have to submit to what you hear. And once you submit and recognize truly your insignificance, you begin to understand that our grievances are bullshit. And all that matters at the end of the day in this fleeting life is that we learn to sit together in a circle and hold hands and break bread. Everything else is a waste of time. The things that we build, that we construct, I'm talking not just about buildings and cities, our ideologies, our grievances, our institutions, 
the wealth that we acquire, all of the crap. And many of you right now will say, that's why I just want to live my life and enjoy it. That's wrong also. This isn't about enjoyment for you. Because if your circle doesn't include the people that are left behind, you're under judgment. Because for all of the people who have their own circle in the suburbs that doesn't include the people that are left behind, your circle is condemned. That's why more than ever, the call of the voice of the shepherd in the wilderness must be heeded. We need to leave the city. We need to abandon our constructions and go back to the beginning. Because our technology, our infrastructure, all of this crap that we've accumulated will be our undoing. I'm convinced of it, Rich, that the only hope is to do the archaeological dig in the ancient practical realm of this completely foreign universe of the biblical text. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. We had a discussion about this word healing. This is an interesting word because it appears in very different contexts. It clearly means heal. That's where we get the word therapy. So that's the first instinct when we hear this word. But then we have other instances, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, where it clearly doesn't mean to heal. Outside of the Bible, the priests are, whatever this verb is, the gods. Clearly, it doesn't mean heal in that instance. This is one of the problems that people run into when they do ancient languages, is you see a word and it appears to have either two separate meanings or two meanings that are related in a way that English doesn't relate those words. The Septuagint authors were very aware of this, so when you see what Hebrew words they're translating with this word, there is a clear understanding that sometimes it means heal and sometimes it means something else. I just want to lay this groundwork because you have to then explain why do we have this one word with these two seemingly different meanings. A, are they seemingly different and actually the same? Or are they just homonyms, two separate words that look the same but actually mean different things? In English, we have the word second. A second can mean different things. If it's a unit of time, it means one-sixtieth of a minute. If there's a race, it's the one who does a little bit worse than number one. It comes in a particular order. Now, maybe there's a relationship between those two different words, but they mean completely different things, and it would not be confusing to any English speaker which meaning you meant in any context, whether you're talking about a unit of time or an order in a list. So those are homonyms that we have in English, and maybe you could relate those two. Now, if you have a duel, the person who holds the guns is the second 
we know why that person would be called the second because they're underneath the first, which are the people doing the actual duels. You can use words in different contexts and they mean different things. And sometimes those different meanings can be related and sometimes not. So here with this word, therapevin, we have to figure out what might be going on. And you did some work on the Hebrew words that are translated therapevin in the Septuagint. You know, you and I have talked about this, not just with respect to this text, Rich, but in general, honestly, it's a pet peeve the way that people take these words because they hear a word that has an obvious connection to the word therapy in English, and then they do exactly what we were critiquing at the beginning of this podcast. They try to make this ancient, practical realm of Scripture, which does not have us in its purview. They try to take it and make it relevant today, and they start talking about the culture of Western therapy in 2023. Oh, Jesus was a therapist. No, we're not talking about therapy in the way that we talk about therapy in the modern world. Now, you can assume that that is a commentary on Western therapy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that contemporary Western therapy is not within the purview of an ancient text. How could that be so? How could a text written two millennia ago be talking about a therapy clinic in Minneapolis? How? If you begin to explain how, I have a problem with your methodology. So in order to understand this word in Greek, we have to, on the one hand, look at the Greek always, right? We have to take the Greek seriously in its own right, which, you know, Richard, you've talked a bit about that already. And also consider, as we've been trying to do, how the Greek is used in the Septuagint and how the translators of the Hebrew who gifted to the classical world, the Septuagint, we have to understand how they rendered the Hebrew and Greek. That's the point I've been trying to stress on the podcast, Rich, and we've been working together on that offline a bit. So let's just take a moment and look at some possibilities. We have this word, and this is all from the same root in Greek, variations. We have the word Therapevo, which aligns to the Hebrew yeshab, which means to sit down. And it appears in Esther and indicates sitting at the gate. It's just a simple usage, but it implies sitting. And what I find interesting about that, Rich, is that we've been talking about two instances of standing that align both to kum, comma, first, which is just a general reference to what the Lord establishes, what Elohim, either Yahweh or Elohim, what God establishes, meaning he establishes Jesus as his locum tenens in Luke. And then we have the second instance of standing, which when I talked about it last week, I explained it's related, obviously, to resurrection in the Greek, but with this unique correspondence in the Semitic, 
it implies Amdun, the local leader. In Arabic, actually, the mayor, the mayor or the local town's leader, right? It still pertains to reference, the one who stands out. It's the one who is leaning in, leaning over. So Jesus, as the reference, is coming into town and exercising his authority as locum tenens to liberate the mother-in-law who is held prisoner in the household of Simon. He's liberating her by giving instruction, by healing. But now, in this particular case, what's happening with this word, therapevo? Well, in Arabic, you have the Semitic cognate, wataba, which means to sit, but also to dwell. This adds a bit of color because when one sits, you are spending time. Now, the interesting thing is that therapon also aligns, and you touched on this, Rich, to the Hebrew ibed. And there are several examples of this in the Old Testament, which, of course, in Arabic is abd, slave. Abd Allah, the slave of God, slave, servant, but also minister and advisor in its usage in the Old Testament, which actually validates what I was saying earlier about this term, Ammadun, which as a noun can function as the one who is the leader in a locality. So Jesus, as the reference, as the locum tenens, as the leader, is acting as the slave, the minister, the advisor, the official, who is sitting down to take care of the sick. He's assuming his role as the main guy. <laughs> but his role as the main guy now, the one who came in as the reference, the one who stood out, who's shouldering the burden, is to sit and dwell among the sick like a good doctor and to heal them. Beautiful. Hello. <laughs> it's just so striking. You can't beat it, but you have to take it within the context of the Old Testament or it doesn't work. And at the same time, you cannot say, oh, Jesus is a therapist. He's so nice. He's a servant leader. No, because the Hebrew, as I just said, implies that he's seated in the gate. Now, in this realm, which is not in the purview of Scripture, the teacher stands and the students sit and post their evaluations on your silly TikTok. But in the biblical realm, in the practical realm of Scripture, the one who is seated is the master. The one who is seated is the teacher. Jesus, in this sense, is seated in authority as the locum tenens of his master, Elohim. He is the Abd Allah. He is the slave of Elohim. He is not the slave of the ones whom he is healing. It looks to your eyes like he is the slave of those around him. But his slavery is towards the one who is seated above 
the heavens. It doesn't work if you are trying to make Jesus relevant today, which is what everybody does. And that's why scripture in the English language and scripture in the way that it is preached in all churches is dead. And believe me, you will never get North Americans to stand up during a lecture while you sit. I've tried it. But you can get them to understand that they will never do it. And then explain to them that what they demand of you as students is incompatible with the way things work in the alien practical realm of scripture. And then there's at least a chance that they will understand that what's happening in Luke has nothing to do with them. And it has nothing to do with St. Paul, Minnesota in 2023. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.